0: Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Surely, In the news reports you are seeing in this day, you are hearing the people of Ukraine scream, Heaven forbid! God forbid! And can we too, as we watch the horrors from so far away and certainly feel so helpless to make a difference, maybe we too find ourselves crying out, God forbid! And who hasn't, at one time or another, on your knees or with your face down in the dirt, cried out in the same way, God forbid this, forbid this. And while we tend to think of the cries on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of our God, as celebratory, The truth is, Hosanna means God save. Surely, the people who followed Jesus into Jerusalem that day were participating in something very important and and were shouting out for the one who was riding the donkey into Jerusalem. But they also had to know that they were walking into a very dangerous space. And so, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. Diana Butler Bass, in her Sunday musing, recalls the work of John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg, two great biblical scholars two wonderful Biblical scholars. Marcus Borg, may his memory be a blessing to us. So um, Bass lifts, lifts up Crossan's newest book, I commend to you, Render Unto, C- Unto Caesar, the struggle over Christ and culture in the New Testament. In our call to worship this morning, We heard the story of Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem, but what we don't hear is the backstory. That Jesus intended this to be a public demonstration against Roman imperial control. (laughs) And this is the work of Cross and and Borg who have shown this to us, opened our eyes with the scales falling off. In an anti-triumphal entry, Jesus rides into Jerusalem from from the east of the city on a donkey as a symbolic, subversive demonstration against the Roman governor Pilate, a, who was arriving at the same time from the west side of the city. You see, Pilate had come from his restful, beautiful headquarters in the coastal city of Caesarea, Philippi, Caesarea, Caesar, Caesar. And he's come to make sure that the Passover crowds don't get out of control. He's come to use his power to keep them managed. And Jesus came from Galilee at the same time to empower those very crowds, if possible. Jesus was greeted as the Davidic Messiah. And so... I don't blame the people of Israel for thinking, the people of Jerusalem for thinking that Jesus was a Davidic Messiah. They had longed for a great king to come and overthrow Rome, but their focus was a little off. You know, um, what Palm Sunday makes clear is that there's a contest going on between Caesar's empire and the empire, or what we would call the realm of God. Uh, A few years ago, I preached on uh, Crossan and Borg's book called The Last Week, and we went through the whole uh, Monday to Friday to Saturday to Sunday um, Holy Week. And that's what they do in that book. And Jesus' procession, They said, proclaimed the kingdom of God, while Pilate's proclaimed the power of empire. We know about the power of empire, don't we? We're seeing it take place right before our eyes. The two processions embody the central conflict that week between the Romans, the temple authorities, and Jesus that led to his crucifixion. Today's gospel reading is interesting in that Jesus tells this parable that foretells what is going to happen after Palm Sunday. This reading takes place after the triumphal ride into Jerusalem and following Jesus' street theater of cleansing the temple. So he's really chapped the Roman and the religious authorities. really the religious authorities... They're angry, and they question his authority. And so Jesus kind of messes with them a little bit, you know, plays a little, some word games, you know, doesn't really answer their questions, kind of answers them, but in ways that are not what they expect. You can just feel their anger boiling up. <laughs> so it is at this point that Jesus tells this parable that we heard today. You know, we we call it the parable of the wicked tenants. The parable actually is grounded in Isaiah five one through seven. That begins with these words: "Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard." My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and, the, and Isaiah goes on to tell about how. Um, the vineyard is destroyed because the people of Israel have not followed in God's way. And Isaiah is telling it of it, "The people of Israel are at fault for the destruction of the vineyard." So those hearing the parable, they hear it very differently than we hear it. They would have known that Jesus was pointing his finger directly at the religious leaders, but also at Israel because they know Isaiah, and also at Israel, the people as a whole who have contributed to this mess. We also hear in this uh, parable the reference to my beloved son, and we immediately, I know where you immediately go, we immediately go to Jesus' baptism at the beginning of this gospel, and hear God claiming Jesus as beloved. But when Jesus tells the end of the parable that has the wicked tenants being destroyed and the vineyard given to others. The listeners, the listeners are appalled because they know that the destruction of Jerusalem means the destruction of Israel. Heaven forbid, they say. They hear in that parable that Jerusalem will be destroyed. God forbid. But isn't it just like Jesus to be focusing this in a new way? Jesus is focusing on the parable, on the distinction between the people of Israel and their religious leaders. In Jesus' telling, the vitality of Israel will remain because the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. The reference cannot be more pointed. Jesus will be rejected, heaven forbid, but will ultimately be the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith in his resurrection. And so what does all this say to us, this writing into Jerusalem and this parable? What does it mean for us? In 21st century, in the United States of America, what does this have to do with us, Jesus? It has everything to do with us. The conflict that we track through the season of Lent between Jesus and those who came To reject him was both political and theological. Pilate's parade of the military might and vast wealth of Rome, an empire ruled by Caesar, the one, by the way, who was called called as the savior of the world, was proclaimed to be lord. I want to remind you, you may not know, but I want to remind you, that in the year 30 of the Common Era, Tiberius bore this title having inherited it from his stepfather Augustus, Lord and Savior of the world. Now, we attribute that title to Jesus. Jesus' counter-procession was a protest, a planned mockery of Pilate's whose direct appropriation of the name Savior and Lord needed to be confronted. The the symbolism makes the point that only God is Caesar. And the real king extends a reign of peace, not of violence. The contrast between Caesar's kingdom and the kingdom, the religious authorities of Jesus' day wanted to maintain to try to keep themselves safe and comfortable and healthy. And the kingdom of God wasn't an intellectual exercise that we sometimes try to make it today. It was real. It was as real as our own issues with political powers and principalities today. Today, the tensions of the season of Lent cannot help but lead us to our own reflection and raise up for us the two important questions raised by Crossan and Borg and Bass. Which journey are we on? Which procession are we in? Two processions entered Jerusalem on that day. It was long, long ago. But as cross and Board claimed, the same question, the same alternative, faces those who would be faithful to Jesus today. Which procession are we in? Which procession do we want to be in? Not just on Palm Sunday, not just in Holy Week, not just on Easter, but everywhere the procession shows up, no matter the week, the year, or the city, or our world. Now, if that's overwhelming you, it should. But I want you to hear Father Richard Rohr's poem, in response to the collective suffering of the people of Ukraine. He writes, how can we not feel shock or rage at what is happening to the people of Ukraine? As we watch their suffering unfold in real time from an unfair distance, who of us does not feel inept or powerless before such manifest evil? In this, at least, we are united. Our partisan divisions now appear small and trivial, don't they? Remember what we teach. Both evil and goodness are, first of all, social phenomena. The body of Christ is crucified and resurrected all at the same time. May we stand faithfully inside both these mysteries. In loving solidarity, we each bear what is ours to carry the unjust weight of crucifixion, in expectant hope of God's transformation. May we be led to do what we can on any level to create resurrection. This must be our remembrance on this Palm Sunday, not just about Ukraine, but about our lives, our country, and the other countries of the world. You see, the truth is, the reason we follow Jesus is because he was honest to God, even when it meant his life. Psalm 80, verse 3, says these words. I have this as a pop up on my computer. Restore us, O oh God, make your face shine I'm on us waiting. that we may be saved. Restore us, O oh God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And, and then I often add, Oh, Restore us, O oh God, make your face shine on, shine on us and give us strength and courage to help you save us to help you save us. So may we be participants in bringing God's realm and reality into our own space. And more than just crying out to God, save us, may we also be the stones that cry out, the people who bring about God's realm on earth and the resurrection, the continual resurrection of Jesus Christ in our midst. Hear these words. In loving solidarity, may we each bear what is ours to carry. Amen.